Well, good morning, Grace family. My name is Kyle, and I am the Next Generation Pastor here at Grace. And it is a privilege to open up the Word and join in hearing from God with you this morning. Though it may be unexpected for me to be up here, I truly believe in the sovereignty of the Lord. He has ordained even prophetic pauses like this to be a moment in which we can hear the Word for a moment and a time where some are hurting and some are in need of tools in their tool belt and how to help those who are hurting. I remember I was emotionally numb. The anger was welling up inside of me and it was spiraling and it was, I wasn't able to grasp it. I felt powerless. The fuse of my inability to, to see everything was, was going to an end, and I was unable to process my pain and my hurt. The sorrow was welling up in my heart as I considered the loss of a dream, the loss of life, the burden of sorrow. The academic theology in my mind couldn't make sense of it. I didn't have a concept for this type of suffering. I always had answers, but at this time, I only had questions. The emotions were swirling in my heart, pulling me in every direction, yet for some reason I couldn't figure out a way to make sense of any of it. All I knew was I was scared because I was not okay. It was December 19th of 2022 when Danielle and I found out that we had lost our fifth baby to miscarriage. We named this baby Mara, which means bitter, because of the sorrow, the pain, and the hurt. How can I process my pain without losing hold of hope in him? How can I bring my raw cries to a Lord who is in control of all things and has power over all things? Is it even worth it to bring my raw prayers to the Lord. Growing up, I was the optimistic, happy, joyful guy. So for the Lord to bring Danielle and I a season of suffering, it was difficult for me to untangle the emotions and the questions from this season. Yet the Lord gave me an answer through his word. I was out to lunch with Pastor Kaoni at Core Life Eatery, and we were talking about some of our burdens and pains, and he opened up to Psalm 77. The Lord illuminated this psalm as a guide to lament. Lament is simply a prayer of pain that leads to trust. And God used this psalm as a key to my closed-off heart. He used this psalm as a bridge from pain to promise. And I believe he can do that with you this morning as well. So if you're following along with a Bible this morning, would you open up into Psalm 77? We'll be reading from this morning. For some of you, you may be enduring suffering and persevering trial right now. For others of you, you're picking up the pieces of your heart after a trial that you have been enduring for a long time. I truly believe this psalm this morning will be an encouragement to you. Now, for those of you who 
saying, I'm not suffering, I'm not hurting or in a trial this morning, I would encourage you to lean in to this psalm of lament because it will be golden wisdom for you to gain in walking alongside others who are in pain and even preparing for a trial that may come down the road. So if you found your place in Psalm 77, would you stand with me out of the reading of God's word? We stand here at grace for the reading of God's word because we believe it is our sole authority. We do not stand over the word of God. We submit to it and stand under it. So we stand out of reverence for God's word. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Your crash of thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord. Lord, we come to you in all seasons of life, in seasons of rejoicing and seasons of mourning. We come to you considering the year that has passed and the pain that has come with it. And feeling the burden of carrying into this new year a burden of pain and sorrow and suffering. And Lord, it weighs on our heart with weariness. Would you speak to us with hope and peace, a reminder of who you are amidst our pain? 
Would you show us your character, your goodness, your kindness, your promises amidst our suffering? We pray this in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, Psalm 77 is a psalm of lament. And we'll get into what lament means a little bit earlier, but a short, or a little bit later, a short definition is simply this. It is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Now, the psalms of lament make up a third of the book of psalms, and they are helpful language to put towards our pain, suffering, and hurting. And so this morning, as we take an aside from our regular sermon series, we wanted to step into Psalm 77 to hear from the word of the Lord and hear the ways in which the word can speak to those who are hurting. The big idea, if you're following along in your notes, is this, four practices and promises for people who are hurting. The first one comes out of verses 1 through 3. The practice is this, turn to God. Because of this promise, he is with you. Our text begins with inward focus. There are five different eyes in this text, and then multiple me and my. It's looking inward as he brings a complaint to the Lord. As he brings his hardship, his weariness, his sorrow, he's looking at his pain. And isn't this almost true? Always true for us when we're enduring suffering is all we can see is this tight vision of the sorrow and the circumstance that is right in front of us. It is hard to see the big picture in the moment. All we can look is inward. But he doesn't just remain there. Though his complaints are inward saying, I, his complaints are directed to the Lord and he points them to God. You see, complaints that are inward lead to venting lead to complaining and sorrow and self-pity. But complaints that are upward leads to trust, seeing who God is amidst our pain. The direction of the complaints of Asaph in the psalm are toward God. Now, some of you may think it doesn't seem very faithful to bring your doubts, your complaints, your disagreements to the Lord. We should only bring praise and worship to him. Now, what if we treated our marriage like this? We had disagreements and, and misalignment. We didn't bring it to them. That wouldn't make for a very healthy marriage. What if we treated our bosses like this? Anytime we don't like something they're doing, we vent to our coworkers. We never seek understanding for the reason that the boss has those policies in place. What if we treat our friends this way? We leave the elephant in the room and never address it. I fear that if we keep these disagreements, concerns, and doubts from God and do not take them into prayer, allowing the word of God to respond and saturate our hearts amidst pain, then we will simply wallow in self-pity, grow full of suspicion towards God, and paint a picture of God totally out of the distortion of our minds rather than the word of God. It requires more faith and strength to bring our cries to the Lord than to bear our burdens on our own. Now, the same may seem contrary to logic. If we take it upon ourselves, we would think it would be requiring more strength. But the opposite is true. It takes strength to be weak 
in front of our Lord. You know, there's an underlying unspoken expectation that I see present in Christian circles that says something like this, Christians lack faith if they show their pain. If that was the case, then we would rebuke Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We would rebuke David grieving his son, Hannah lamenting in her brokenness, Job grieving the loss of family, property, and well-being. Do these people have less faith because they grieve? Do these people sin in their lament? Are they weaker because they show their hurt? If we would not rebuke these people in Christian history, including the perfect Son of God, why would we look down upon someone who laments pain in this life, grieves loss, weeps amidst long-suffering, and longs for heaven? We must not stifle or diminish a heart that longs to cry out to the Lord. Rather, we should call them and point them to the Lord who is their refuge and strength and weep along with them. The psalmist gives us language for these prayers of despair and longing and heartbreak. It is deep turmoil and painful longing in prayer. If you look down at verse 2, says that his hand is outstretched in prayer and longing. One commentator says his active remembrance of God does not give him comfort, but has the opposite effect, producing groaning and spiritual exhaustion. It echoes what the psalmist says in Psalm 143, 6, who says, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched and weary land. When he reflects on God and his goodness, it makes him more sorrowful because he's not seeing that in his life right now. Sometimes we know in our minds that God is good and that his promises are true, but the circumstances that flood our hearts and our minds have a louder voice than the promises of God. Have you ever had days or seasons like this? You find it difficult to come to church and sing songs of praise because it doesn't seem true for you. You find it difficult to read the word of God because it seems like it's written by a fantasy God, not one that reigns in this dark time. You find it hard to rejoice with others when they're celebrating and you question why God won't give you his favor or even seemingly hear your prayers. Amidst these days, the Lord simply calls his people to come to him. So how do we do this? How do we come to him? How do we cast our cares upon the Lord? That is where the psalmist gives us a template and outline called lament. So what is lament? Let's take a look at a deeper dive of how to bring our cries to the Lord. This psalm is somewhat of a template itself in how to bring our sorrows and our pains to the Lord in a raw and transparent way. I found it helpful to explain lament as a bridge from pain to promise. 
So as we look at lament here on the screen, we'll see that one short definition is prayer in pain that leads to trust. This four-step process of lament comes from this book by Mark Vrogov, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. My wife Danielle and I have found this very helpful in processing our pain. The first step that he calls us to and what we see in this text is to turn. Turn from inward to upward in our complaints, in our hardship. It's an invitation in your pain to cry out to God. The second step is complain. And now, if you're like me, you hear this word and there's only a negative connotation to the word complain. But what this author is calling us to is to recognize that it's not supposed to be this way, to acknowledge that and to bring it honorably to the Lord. Complaint is expressing your frustration and confusion and despair to God based on who he is. Upward complaints lead to trust, whereas, as we said earlier, inward complaints lead to venting and self-pity, giving permission to pour out our raw heart is not aimless or selfish. It's focused on who he is amidst the pain. The third thing we do is ask. Ask for help. Prayers of faith anchored in truth of who God is, we ask boldly amidst our pain for God to intervene, to listen, to teach, act, restore, or vindicate. And finally, we trust moving from complaint to confidence in who God is. With active patience, we choose to trust God's certain character more than the uncertain circumstances. If you would like to learn more about this process and even gain from this book, there are sermon discussion questions that are found in Grace News and even in the app that you can find a resource for lament, including a reference guide of Psalms of Lament and other passages of Lament. As we practice turning to God in our pain, the promise we can rest in is that he is with you in all things, even in the most excruciating pain or the most isolating loneliness. The second practice and promise is found in verses 4 through 9. If you look down at your text, we'll see that it summarizes the practice to cry out to God and the promise that he hears you. You see, the psalmist refuses to be comforted. He cannot reflect on God's goodness without it causing more sorrow. He cannot utter any words without paralyzing agony and cannot get any sleep because the longing keeps him awake. One commentator says, the anxiety about the rejected people of God keeps the lonesome petitioner awake. This is an individual lament, yet the psalmist is crying out to God on behalf of his people. And many of you, you may not be suffering or longing or losing sleep over your own pain, but rather over the suffering of those whom you love. Maybe you've lost sleep over the safety of a child, the suffering that is enduring in a loved one. Maybe it's the salvation of someone who is dear to you. 
Have you felt the aches and pains of your heart groaning and longing for salvation, for deliverance, for redemption for those whom you love? Have you lost sleep over it? Have you been unable to focus on anything else and you're so focused on calling the Lord to work in this pain? Paralyzed with your concern for yourself or loved ones, where do you go in this time? Do you run to the Lord right away, or is he your last resort? Though it is raw, unpolished, and lacking in confidence, the psalmist brings his full heart to the Lord, and he lays it at his throne. Finally, in verse 5, he makes a request to God. He requests that God would bring his mind and works to the faithfulness of God through a song in the night. Sorry, verse 6. A song in the night. These songs in the night were encouragements from the Israelites about the faithfulness of God in the past. Likely in times of exile, the, the Israelites would reflect on these psalms in the night as a comfort and a reminder of what God has done so that they would have comfort in the time and hope for the future. The remembrance of his great power encouraged them, permitting them to sleep quietly, even in great pain. But now the psalmist shows that the hymns of the night seem to no longer be working. And rather, the Lord is keeping their eyes from closing. An example of the psalm of the night is here on the screen. Habakkuk 3 reveals to us what this may look like. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. This is a reminder of the faithfulness of God for the people of God. In Psalm 77, the the psalmist is essentially praying in verse 6, I want to have faith in you, Lord, but I don't. I I long to long for you. I want to desire you. But I need your help to transform my heart, to remind me of believing the psalm in the night. Crying out to God to open your heart to hear God, see God, and believe him again. As I mentioned earlier, it can be hard for me to untangle the emotions and questions in my heart. I found often that God uses outside means to be the one who would draw you out even more. Sometimes I think of our heart of emotions as a deep well, and I can only reach so far to pull up the depths of my core lies, my hurt, and my pain. And at times the Lord will use other people, his word, his spirit, to draw out your heart, the depths of that pain. Not just to reveal it, but to expose it in the light so that he may respond with his word. 
God often uses means outside of ourselves to reveal dark areas in our lives. Men, I've found that it is hard for us to reach deeply in this well, to find access to our emotions. Rather, we have this trap door that prevents us or other people from getting down to our core lies, our fears, our pride, our shame, would keep us from opening that door and finding out what is underneath. Our fear seems to be holding us from it, yet when the Lord exposes it in the light, it's a lot less scary than we thought. And the Lord equips us with promises and truth in his presence to help us to overcome even the darkest of questions. Proverbs 25 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. God often uses means outside of ourselves to reveal dark areas in our lives. So the question for us is, what is holding you back from letting the Spirit of God draw out darkness in your heart and turning it into light? I truly believe the Spirit of God was working in the writer of this psalm as there's a transition in his heart. As he says, I will search diligently in my spirit. It echoes the psalmist when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me. I'm allowing you to draw me out in the depths of the well of my heart. Because I am not fearful of what you will find. I know your strength will provide. He searched his heart and considered the doubts, lies, and worries that are roadblocks from the belief he has in the Lord's promises. Has someone in your life drawn out the deep well in your heart? Has God revealed to you the core of sin, hardship, or pain that would cause fear, shame, or guilt to hold you from trusting in the promises of God? What if you brought those things to the Lord in prayer? What, what do you think God would say? How would he respond if you offered to him the darkest of questions? the depths of your core lies, the things that are ugly and shameful and hurtful, do you think he would be surprised? Do you think you have dirt on God that makes him something that he's not? Are you afraid that you're right about a lie that you believe about God? The book of Daniel says, He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. The psalmist says, Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. God already knows the lies you believe. He already knows your secrets. He already knows the disagreements you have with him. Yet, God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The way of the Lord is holy and good. And while we were still sinners, mocking, threatening, abandoning him, Christ died for us. 
So though you may be fearful of what is at the depth of the well of your heart, the Lord is not scared or surprised. And rather, he has promises in his presence that will be a balm to your soul, that will be hope, that will be a bridge from pain to promise. As Asaph lays in bed in the middle of the night, restless, unable to speak, and crying out to the Lord, he brushes off and opens up the hatch of the lies and doubts, and this is what comes out. Will the Lord spurn forever? Never again be favorable. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? All those being causes, and now he asks if this is the root in the final question, is it anger? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? In this last question, he's asking, are you angry at me because of my sin? Are you angry at us because we have betrayed or gone away from you and you're calling us to rebuke? That is why you're absent. That is why we don't see your hand. Are you angry with us, Lord? Notice how all of these questions are addressed in third person, using God or he rather than addressing God directly. His doubts, lies, and fears drive questions that are based on the circumstance rather than the promises of God. See, the people of God in this time were likely in exile, and they did not have active sight of God's hand in their life. So their faith relied heavily on the scriptures they meditated on, the songs in the night, the stories of God's faithfulness in Israelite history. But in asking these questions, it becomes clear in the text that when he expresses these doubts, the heart of the psalmist comes to rest. For he knows that God of Abraham cannot deny himself or cut off his people. He knows that the God of all things, the creator of all things, is not unfaithful. He knows that God is good. The psalmist teaches his important lesson in taking all things to the Lord in prayer. Neglecting to cry out to God in prayer can hinder our hearing of God in Scripture. Neglecting to cry out to God in prayer the way that we talk to God can hinder our hearing of Scripture the way that he talks to us. As a scripture, as the Spirit exposes the darkness in his heart, he brought it to the Lord in prayer and exposed the roadblock between God's promise and his belief. And the Spirit of God brought the works and character of the Lord to Asaph's mind. And in the next verses, he begins to move toward faithful remembrance of who he is. So the third practice and promise amidst pain is this. Remember the way and works of the Lord. He is holy and faithful. Verses 10 through 14, we see a complete shift in Asaph's writing. We see that he starts to speak to God with confidence and faithfulness. But what's interesting is that God didn't change from the beginning of the psalm to the end of psalm. Rather, Asaph was given faith to remember God and his works. Verse 11 is the first time the psalmist begins to address the Lord in personal prayer. 
addressing him in second person with you rather than he. The cry to the Lord becomes personal. The barrier has been broken between the psalmist and unreservedly pursuing the Lord in raw, honest prayer. Look down at your text in the contrast between verses 4 and 5 and verses 10. Both passages reflect on the days of old, the years of long ago, the years of the right hand of the Most High. All of these point into the time in which the Lord was actively and miraculously working for the Israelites to see. But now, in a time of exile, remembering his faithfulness and only relying on the words and the faithfulness and the recalling of his works could result in two responses. The beginning of the psalm shows one and the end of the psalm shows another. The first response would be sorrow and mourning, whereas the second response is hope and comfort. As God has exposed the roadblock of doubt and lies, Asaph now approaches the throne of God and remembers his faithfulness with a pure and faithful heart. He rejoices in God's faithfulness rather than resenting God's perceived absence. You see, left unchecked, our perception of God's character can hinder our belief in the promises of God. Our perception of God's character can hinder our belief in the promises of God. The psalmist declares in this text, I will remember, I will ponder, I will meditate. And these are not works to earn God's future favor, but these are rather disciplines to recall and remember his favor in the past. Do you frequently ponder and meditate on the works and the word of God? One of my seminary professors, Donald Whitney, once said this about our time in Scripture. Read less, if necessary, in order to meditate more. He equated meditation to the word lingering by a fire. Last year, our student ministry went to Sleeping Bear Dunes for Dunes Day. This is an annual trip in which we go to the dunes and then we run down the dune and we go into the ice cold water. It sounds fun, right? Well, this day was particularly cold and it, although the sun was there, it was deceiving how cold Lake Michigan was. But that did not stop a group of upperclassmen guys from ripping off their shirts and running in to play in the waves. So they bolted in and I watched them as they played in the waves, snapped some photos, and then as they come back in, their pearly whites were outlined by nice blue lips. It was pretty cold. So we got them dry and put some towels around them and made sure they were warm in this time. But what they needed was to sit by a fire. To sit by the warmth of a fire and not just when we sit by a fire, we don't just sit by it, be warm and then go right away. Rather, we linger by the fire. We allow the fire to get into our skin, our bones, and to warm up our whole body. But why don't we do this when we meditate on the Word of God? That same professor said, The failure to linger is the reason why many fail to remember or find their hearts warmed by the fire of God's Word. I'm concerned that we can quickly become content with a heart that is cold to the Word of God, not seeing the need to linger in it to warm our hearts. 
Our blue lips are not a concern for us, and the Word of God doesn't dwell in our hearts. The psalmist then teaches us this, that meditating on the Word of God keeps the way and the works of the Lord at the forefront of our hearts and minds amidst trials. Whether you are persevering through a trial right now or you're picking up the pieces of a hardship in this time, the Lord equips us with the word of God that is fruitful and beneficial for all things in life. We will equip you for all things for life and godliness. Now look at verse 13. It says, your way, O God, is holy. He's reflecting on the character of God as we meditate on the word of God. That is just the means, that's not the end. The means of meditation is to have communion and knowledge of our God, to know him more. The means of our quiet time is to know him more. The means of our prayer is to communicate with him. Attending church, having fellowship with the body, all is to commune with the Lord and to in turn love his people. And so he sees the character of God as he meditates on his promises. Your way, O God, is holy. It reminds the people of Israel of Exodus 15, 11, which says, Who is like you, O Lord, God among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. To be holy means to be set apart and to be absolutely morally pure. God never does wrong. God is never unjust. But let me tell you that in our suffering and our pain, that is a hard pill to swallow. Satan desperately wants you to question God and think you know better than him. Everything and everyone evil in this world wants to convince you that God is not holy and not perfect. People around you may want to convince you that God is simply a legalist and we do not need to follow him and we should abandon him. So the question is, will you take the bait or will you double down and trust in the authority of the word of God, doubting your doubts and trusting in the unchanging character of the creator of the universe? Do you believe God is who he says he is? Do you believe that when trials come? One of my uncles is an incredibly faithful man of God. Over the years, he has been an elder of a church. He has worked with Fellowship of Christian Athletes, building up coaches to disciple young athletes, not only physically, but spiritually growing them. But the thing that really stuck out to me was the way that he was faithful with his wife, daily in devotions and immersing themselves in the word of God. Faithful with his kids, building them up in the word of the Lord. And faithful even with me, his nephew, giving wisdom, always pointing to God's word. Last year, my uncle was diagnosed with a second diagnosis of cancer. And it was multiple myeloma. It was a high stage that would cause a rigorous amount of treatment for him. 
And so each day he had to take treatment that would make his body just debilitated, unable to have any visiting, unable to communicate or be mobile. His body grew weaker and weaker every day. Yet his faith remained strong. My mom and their siblings would have calls with him and he would always end the call with these three words. God is good. Amidst debilitating pain, hardship and suffering, isolation from others, pain that doesn't necessarily see a light at the end of the tunnel, he remembered that God's character is unconditional of the circumstance and he said, God is good. Every trial in this life will test the strength of your belief in God's goodness and holiness. By the grace of God, my uncle is now in remission and the Lord continues to carry him through treatment and care. He taught me that if you persevere through it, the trial will not only test your faith, but it will strengthen your faith. James says, count it all joy, my brothers. How? When you, feed, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that testing your faith produces perseverance. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. The third practice is to remember God's works and way because we have a promise that he is holy and faithful. The fourth practice in times of hurting is hope in your Redeemer, because he is your Deliverer. As we look at verses 15 through 20, by the end of the psalm, the eye has disappeared, and now the objective facts of faith is what has captured the psalmist's hearts and ours as well. The psalmist is recalling the details of God's faithfulness in Israelites' history, likely pointing to the exodus, parting of the Red Sea, the presence of God in Mount Sinai, and God's leading in the wilderness. All of these being prime examples of God's work and redemption in Israel's history. This was his highlight reel of redemption in the past so that they could reflect on it as a song in the night to give them comfort and hope. The psalmist is calling the readers to remember God's faithfulness and respond with faith and hope in God. Mark Vrogop, the author of Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, says the psalmist anchors his questioning, his hurting heart, to the single greatest redemptive event in the life of Israel thus far. This moment defined his understanding of God's character. The exodus was an anchor for his weary soul. For the Christian, the exodus event, the place where we find ultimate deliverance, is the cross of Christ. This is where all our questions, our heartaches, our pain should be taken. The cross shows us that God has already proven himself to be for us and not against us. End quote. As the psalmist writes God's redemptive work under the old covenant, God's word gives us hope and comfort from a powerful story of his redemptive work in all Christian history, the greatest redemptive work, the cross of Christ. So let this be a song in the night for those who have weary hearts.
You were dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers. So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins with many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. This is the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our hope amidst ever-changing circumstances, amidst any suffering and hardship and pain that we endure. The gospel is our anchor. Because of Christ's work on the cross, Christ's work enables us to do all these practices that we have discussed today. It is because of Christ that we are able to be at peace with God and turn to God. It is because of Christ that we can boldly approach the throne and cry out to God. It is because of Christ's work that we can remember and rejoice in the way and works of the Lord. And it is because of the finished work of Christ that we can hope in our Redeemer. He equips us with all we need to live out these practices amidst our pain. And he gives us these promises for our comfort. He is with you. He hears you. He is holy and faithful. And he is our deliverer. For those of you who need to discuss this more and sit in this text, we give sermon questions We give discussion questions each week. You can find them on the app. You can find them on the website. But I also gave a resource that shares a little bit more about lament. Passages of lament throughout Psalms and other books. I would encourage you to take a look at that. Walk through it with your family, friends. Consider how you are processing pain. Amidst the hardship, are you turning to the promises amidst the pain? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you have been faithful. We thank you for the ways in which you have carried us through hardship and through pain. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness that we do not deserve. Amidst our lack of faithfulness, you remain faithful. So Lord, for those who are hurting in this time, I pray that you would be our comfort and strength. I pray that you would turn our hearts to you, that we would cry out the depths of our hearts so that you may turn darkness into light and that you may redeem our hearts and bring restoration to our souls, bringing comfort, peace, and joy.